good morning. It's great to see everybody today. Um, it's good to be with you. My name is Elliot. Like Lance said, I'm one of the pastors. And what we're going to do today is what we've been doing for the last few weeks, and we'll continue it through much of the summer. We're taking a look at God's epic story as unfolded through the pages of the Bible. And we're going to focus on some of the key themes, some of the major events, some of the heroes that surface along the way. And we're going to figure out what does it mean for us to be part of God's epic story? Because all of us, we have this desire within us where we, we don't want to just live ordinary, normal, mundane lives. We, we really want lives that are epic. And so as we go through this series, we're discovering what God says about what we can do to be a part of his story which is a life that is really a life that's worth living. Because it's a life that, as we discover, we're not just living for what we could create or what we could come up with or what we can imagine or what our abilities could accomplish, but we're a part of something far bigger and far greater and something that far outlasts our own existence here on this earth when we're a part of God's epic story. So that's what we're unpacking. In this story, one of the things that we're going to see it's just like if you've studied, uh, if you studied literature or if you studied film, you you see this uh, this specific flow take place within kind of the stories that resonate with us, stories that are epic. And the flow of the story it, it begins with an introduction. There's something that captures our attention, invites us into the story, brings us into it. We're introduced to maybe some characters or something that's going on, and we're invited in. And then after the introduction, the story quickly takes some kind of a twist. There's there's some problem that is presented, or maybe there's some tension that's created. Something happens. The story takes this shift, and then a good portion of the story is trying to figure out how to solve that problem or how to relieve that tension. And that just kind of grows and builds and builds, and then there's always some kind of climax in the story where stuff is resolved and the hero saves the day and Everything goes back to the way that it was supposed to be. And you actually see that same flow happening through the pages of the Bible. And so what we discovered two weeks ago is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we discover in the creation story where we get this amazing kind of top-down perspective of how God created the world. We discover that God is the good and loving ruler of the world. God created a good earth for us to live on, and this earth is incredibly beautiful. This last week, I was with one of our mission teams, we were up in Toronto, Canada, working with Dave Strobel, um, who came out from Seabreeze and started a church up there a few years ago. So we were working with him, and we had a little bit of free time one evening, and so we were staying in the Toronto area, and we decided we were going to drive around Lake Ontario and see Niagara Falls. Now, I had never been to Niagara Falls before, and so honestly, I really didn't have much of a desire to go. I was like, you know, it's a waterfall. It's no big deal. I don't, I don't even, I don't, I, I mean, I'll go because the team wants to go, but I'm not overly excited. But we get there, and I was just blown away. I mean, I don't know if you've seen it, but it was amazing. I mean, both sides of the river, all around the falls, just thousands of people just watching this water roll over this cliff. I mean, it was amazing. And so through creation, through this beautiful world that God created, one of the things that we learn is that God is good. But another thing that we learn is God is loving. See, when God created us in the creation story, something that it says is it says that God made us, all of us, in his image. That means he made us relational. He made us with the ability to not only give and receive love to one another, but also have a relationship with him, a meaningful relationship. For me, one of the more difficult things about going to Canada was leaving my family behind. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old little girl, nine-month-old son, and then obviously my wife. And so for me, that was one of the more difficult parts about going to Canada is just being away from them for that trip. But on Father's Day last Sunday, 
um, while we were up there, my wife sent me this video. I want I want you guys to see this video real quick. Isn't that awesome? I just, I mean, it's like, I don't know, every morning when she gets up, it's like a bird nested in her hair, and she is just the cutest little girl in the world. But, I mean, that video just melts my heart every time. She's kind of like, happy Father's Day. It just gets me. See, God, when he created us, he created us to be relational. And we can see the fact that God is a loving God through the way that he created us to not only interact with one another, but also to interact with him. But when we think about our own experience, our history, and also what's going on around us in the world, our experience is not always one of goodness and love. And the reason is, is that there's evil in the world. There's a problem that exists. And so last week, Matt really went through and unpacked the reason that there's evil in the world. The Bible refers to it as the fall. It's found in Genesis chapter 3. And what happened was, is Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he gets them to believe the lie that God is not good and God is not loving. And so they make a decision and go against what God has said for them to do. And in doing that, they bring sin and all of its consequences into the world. And that launched humanity into a spiral of rebellion that we experience in our own lives today. And what sin did is it really, it twisted up the way that stuff's supposed to be. So it made what was wrong appear to be right. It made something that is false appear to be true. Sin made what is hurtful seem helpful. It made what is painful seem pleasant. I mean, the list just goes on and on, but what sin did is sin twisted up the way that life is supposed to be. And the ultimate consequence of sin is revealed in the Bible. The ultimate consequence is death. And it's not merely physical death and ceasing to exist, but when the Bible talks about death, it's describing something that happens when we physically die, but it actually goes on for all of eternity. See, because God is good and God is loving, he's the creator of all that is good and loving, When we decide to sin and separate ourselves from him, if we enter eternity in that state, then we are eternally separated from all that is good and all that is loving. That's final. But the good news is is that the story doesn't end on such a depressing note. And so what we see is God, in the story of the fall, God makes a statement, and he points to the future, and he says, I have a plan to redeem the world. I have a plan to address the issue of sin and open a way for people to enter back into a right relationship with me. And then for the rest of the story, what he does is he starts to unroll that plan. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story today, and we're seeing a pattern start to take place. There's a very important pattern that's emerging in the story. And the pattern is that despite human rebellion, God keeps pursuing a relationship with the people he has made. We're going to see this over and over and over again, that despite human rebellion, God keeps pursuing a relationship with the people that he's made. This is very, very important. And so as we see this start to unroll, it brings our attention to this character by the name of Abraham. He is a very significant and an interesting character in the story, and he's the man that we're going to focus on today in today's message. Now, something that Abraham is famous for is his faith. It's actually legendary in the Bible. Oftentimes when the Bible talks about what it looks like to have faith or what it means to have faith, it points to Abraham. This is what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. It says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. It's not talking about physical children of Abraham, but when it's saying this, it's, it's describing the reality that when we want to model or when we want to know kind of the originator of what it means to have faith in God, Abraham is the one that we can look to. And when we look at Abraham's story, 
we see this continual theme of Abraham continues over and over again to have faith in God. So we're going to pick up Abraham's story in Genesis 12, but I want to give you a little bit of a background on Abraham's life because his story actually begins in Genesis 11, runs through Genesis chapter 25. I would encourage you to read that. I'm not going to cover every detail of his life, but it's rather fascinating. You can read that on your own, Genesis 11 through 25. But what we know about him, before we pick him up in Genesis chapter 12, we know that he's born into a family that doesn't worship the God of the Bible. His father's name is Terah, which is a reference to a moon god that the family worships. So they're worshiping some deity that they attach to the moon. We know that Abraham's name, which was originally Abram, means exalted father. God later changes his name. But even Abram, that name, is a reference to this moon deity. So we know that he's raised in a family that doesn't worship the God of the Bible. Another thing that we know about Abraham before we um, encounter him in Genesis 12, we know that him and his wife Sarah aren't able to have kids. His wife is barren, so they haven't been able to have any children. We know that he's originally from a place called Ur, which is kind of down by the Persian Gulf, and then he's moved with his family up to a place called Haran, which is kind of modern-day Turkey. And then we're going to see him make another move in this story. And then kind of a last note is when we pick up the story, he's 75 years old. So he's lived a lot of life. He's got a lot of life behind him. He's not, a, he's not a young man. He's not in his 20s, but he's 75 years old. When we pick up the story, and what's going to happen is God's going to come to him. He's going to say, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your religion, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. So we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. God is speaking, and God says this to him. It says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God comes to him, and he gives him an instruction, and then attached to that instruction is a promise. He says, Abraham, I want you to go, and I want you to do this. I want you to leave your religion. I want you to leave your family. I want you to go to this new place I'm going to show you. And then he attaches a blessing that's pretty good. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I'm going to bless. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Those who curse you, I'm going to curse. So he attaches this pretty good-sounding promise to this command. And so what Abraham does is he reasons that it makes more sense to follow the God that can show up to him and speak to him in a language that he can understand, speak to him personally. makes more sense to follow that God than it does to worship this moon deity that he's been worshiping for a good portion of his life. So Abraham, in the very next verse, it says, Abraham went. He packed up, and he begins this 400-mile journey from where he was kind of in modern-day Turkey down through the Arabian Desert to this land called Canaan, this land God said that he's going to show him. And as you study Abraham's life, you see this happen over and over and over again. God shows up. God says, Abraham, I want you to do something. And then Abraham turns, and Abraham takes action. And when we see this happen, what's happening is Abraham is modeling for us what it looks like to have faith in God. Now, this is very significant because in Abraham's story, we see this example of what it looks like to have faith. The reason this is so significant for us, especially today, is there's a lot of confusion going on about what it means to have faith in God. A lot of people think faith, when they refer to faith or they say just believe, it sounds good, but really what they're describing is a blind faith that's not built on anything intelligent or rational or verifiable. It's kind of like this this illogical leap where you don't take reality 
and reason into consideration, and you just kind of, in faith, you just kind of jump, trusting that something's going to happen. Actually, there's a movie, a movie's Mulan. As, as I, you know, get older with my daughter and I watch more princess movies, I'm probably going to use more in my messages. Um, but Mulan actually has a really, really good example of what I think it means for a lot of people in our culture when they describe faith. Mulan's got this example. So let's watch this real quick, an example of what people think faith is. Sali, is your daughter here yet? The matchmaker is not a patient woman. Of all days to be late, I should have prayed to the ancestors for luck. How lucky can they be? They're dead. Besides, I've got all the luck we'll need. This is your chance to prove yourself. times when we talk about faith or when we say, oh, I, I just have faith, I believe, a lot of times we're, this is what we're describing. We're kind of, you know, we kind of got God out here. He's our lucky cricket. And we just kind of, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. And then we just start moving forward. But when the Bible talks about faith, in no way is that what it's describing. When the Bible talks about faith, I think probably the best description or definition of the word faith in the Bible, faith means we trust and obey. That's what faith is. If you want to know what faith is, faith means you trust and then you obey. And this is very important. See, trust is built through words and actions. Before my wife, Allie, and I got married, we dated. And during the dating process, one of the things that we were trying to determine is, is the other person trustworthy enough for me to attach my life to them? I mean, it, 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 when, you, when you say your vows, you're, you're saying that for the rest of my life, until death do us part, we're going to make this marriage work. And in order for that to happen, we need to know that we can trust and rely on the other person. We found out if each other was trustworthy based on what we said and then based on what we did. That's how you determine if a person is trustworthy based on what they say and what they do. But then that next word, obedience, that's the action. The, the action, the willingness to actually act on what we say we trust, that's what shows if we actually do have trust. See, something that I know about all of you this morning, just by you being in here and you sitting down, I know that you trust that the chairs that you're in will support you. I know that based on your actions. Nobody walked in and said, Elliot, I believe this chair will hold me, and then sat down. You just came in, you sat down. You showed through your actions that you have trust in that chair. It's the same way when it comes to God. When it comes to God, we can say all day long, oh, I trust him, I have faith in God, just like you could say all day long, I trust the chair. But if you never sit down, well, then it's not real. So our faith becomes real when we examine the evidence and then we say, okay, based on the evidence, I'm going to take action. I'm going to actually obey what God has said to do. See, God doesn't intend for us to ignore reality and leave logic at the door. He wants us to realize that he's good and that he's loving. He wants us to examine the facts, and then he wants us to then make a decision on faith and act in obedience based on what he said. I mean, if you just think about it, that's why he gave us the Bible in the manner in which he gave it to us. We didn't get the Bible. Aliens didn't descend in some ship, and then all of a sudden this, this book just appeared to us. We didn't just walk out into the desert and find it somewhere. 
We didn't, we didn't get it in the middle of some field with nobody else around. No, the Bible, these 66 books, they were given to us over a period of 1,400 years. We're over a process that we can sit down and we can verify. 40 different authors, three different continents. God did it in a way where we can go back and we can research, are the things described in here true? Are these people real? Did they really exist? These events that are claimed to be eyewitness accounts, are there other eyewitnesses to these accounts? We can actually go back and we can research this stuff and we can verify it. The whole reason God gave us the Bible the way that he did is because he wants our trust and our faith in him not to be illogical or, rea- or ir- illogical or just ignoring reality. He wants us to examine the facts and come to the conclusion that he is trustworthy. And because he's trustworthy, then we can take action and we can move in a specific direction that he's told us to go in. You see this unfold over and over again in Abraham's life. You see him encounter a situation, God gives him instruction, and then Abraham comes to the conclusion, I can trust God based on what God has said and what God has done, and I'm going to move in that direction. But as we follow Abraham's story, something that we also discover is that Abraham's faith wasn't perfect. In fact, there were times where Abraham struggled with his faith. So we, we pick his story back up. So he's, he's taken this 400-mile journey across the Arabian desert. He's come to the land of Canaan, this promised land. God comes to him. He's 75 years old when he gets there. God comes to him a second time, and God says, I'm going to give you a son. So God gives him this second promise, kind of restates the first one. And then some time starts to pass. And you know how it is when you're waiting on something to happen. Time seems to slow down. I mean, if you're on hold with tech support, a minute feels like an hour. You're just waiting, and you're just like, come on. And you can only imagine that that's what Abraham's experiencing. So about five years pass. So he, he was 75 when he got there. God gave him the promise, promise a second time. Then about five years pass. Now he's probably about 80 years old. He's starting to struggle with it. He's saying, okay, God didn't say when it's going to happen. We haven't been able to have kids. My wife and I just keep getting older. When in the world is this going to happen? So God comes to Abraham. Abraham's really struggling with trusting God, and this is what we find in Genesis 15. Starting in verse 2, Abraham is talking, and Abraham says to God, he says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? You have given me no children. So he points out the obvious. Hey, if I'm going to be the father of this great nation, if we're going to be your chosen people, if this is how you're going to reveal your plan of redemption and bless the whole world, I need a son in order for that to happen. So he points out the obvious. And then God says this to Abraham, starting in verse 4. He says, A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took, God takes Abraham outside. This happens at night, so he takes him outside his tent, and he's outside, and he says this. He says, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So what God is saying is he's saying, Abraham, what I have in store for you, I, I know that it hasn't happened yet, but what I have in store for you is so amazing that even if you could count how many people are going to be included in your offspring, you wouldn't be able to. That's how numerous this blessing that I have for you is going to be. So God paints this picture for him again and says, just like you can't count the stars, I, I have this blessing for you that is so far beyond what you could even imagine. Just trust me. So then the next verse, Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. But then we move on in the story. So Abraham struggled. God comes to him, kind of restores his faith. But then we move on, and we find that Abraham is still struggling. And his, his wife, Sarah, rightfully so, she's struggling with this as well. So we skip forward about another five years. So now he's 85, she's 75, and they're trying to figure out, 
okay, we keep getting older. There's no date on when God is going to make this happen. So maybe we should take it into our own hands. Maybe we should make God's promise happen. He promised it, and so maybe we should just bring it about. It's kind of a classic example of the faulty thinking that God blesses those who help themselves. And so what they do is they decide to take matters into their own hands. Sarah has this idea. Her idea is, okay, it's culturally appropriate at the time where if the wife can't have a kid, one of her servants could be given to the husband. If the husband has a kid through the servant, then that would be considered the legitimate offspring of the wife. So she has this idea. She pitches it to Abraham. Abraham goes along with it, and they end up having a son. The problem is, is that wasn't what God had promised. They relied on themselves, and instead of making a decision based on faith, they made a decision based on their own thinking of this is how we're going to bring about God's promise. I'm not going to get into all the implications of that decision, but what you find in the story is their decision to not follow God, but to take it into their own hands, that causes a lot of problems for them and the family as the story progresses. But we see that they keep keep struggling with their faith. And now a question that they've got to be asking themselves is, we've struggled with our faith, we've questioned God, we've taken matters into our own hands and tried to bring about God's promise. The question has to be, we haven't been faithful to God always, but will God still be faithful to us? And so what we see is even though Abraham struggled with his faith and relied on himself, God stays faithful to his promise. So we pick the story up. We're going to skip forward. There's several events that happen, but kind of staying on this particular story, we skip ahead to now Abraham's 99 years old. He's on the verge of 100. One of the things that he describes about himself, there's another passage where they're kind of offering commentary on what happened, and something that they say about Abraham is Abraham considered himself as good as dead and his wife as good as dead. He's 99, she's 89. How in the world is this going to happen? And then God comes to Abraham. They've been waiting 24 years. Promise first came at 75, he's now 99. God comes to him and says, in one year, you and Sarah will have a son. I mean, can you imagine what they must have thought and what they must have felt in that moment? We haven't always been faithful. We haven't always obeyed perfectly. We haven't always followed perfectly. This road has been a struggle but God is going to continue to be faithful. And now God has actually, instead of just saying it's going to happen, he's attached a time to it. He's saying in one year, this is going to take place. So then guess what happens? One year later, Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, and they have a son. I mean, can you imagine their joy? 25 years of waiting. They had, you know, they had gone through a good part of their life. They had tried to have kids that wasn't able to take place. So they had probably given up hope. Then God comes to them when they're past the age of having kids, and God says, hey, you're going to have a kid. They really wanted one. They wait an additional 25 years, and finally it comes about. I mean, I'm only 32. That means I would have been waiting since for a promise to take place since I was seven. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine waiting for 25 years for something to take place. I can't imagine waiting 10 years for something to take place. But God's come to them. He speaks to them a specific promise. And then 25 later, 25 years later, He brings about the promise, and they have a a son. You can just imagine the celebrations that they were putting on. Now, if this was a Disney story, what would happen at this point is it would, the next line would be, and they all lived happily ever after. They had this son, and they went and found a princess for the son, and it all just worked out perfectly. But this isn't a Disney story. This is God's story, and one of the things that God is doing in this story is he's, he's revealing to Abraham and also to us how he is going to redeem the world what he is going to do in the future to address the issue of sin 
and open a way for people to enter back into a right relationship with him. So what God does is, in the story of Abraham, he paints a very vivid picture for us, and he brings about the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. It's what we read in Genesis chapter 22. It's a, it's a shocking and a confusing passage, but it has some very key takeaways for us in how we follow God. This is what it says, Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. It says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Very important to remember, this is a test. This is only a test. He said to Abraham, here I am. He replied, then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. That's another important note. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. So you're wondering, what in the world is going on? God is asking, he's just pretty much stated, Abraham, I want you to take what's most important to you, and I want you to give it back to me. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, another important, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So you can kind of start to see Abraham's faith. The the word there specifically is first person plural. It doesn't mean I will come back to you. It's we will come back to you. You can see Abraham's faith. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Now again, we need to pause here because the question is, well, how old is Isaac at this time? And just based on the word used to describe Isaac, the, the word for son, the indication is he's probably between 15 years old and maybe 30 years old. But let's just guess he's 15. I think that makes a little more sense to me. So he's probably 15 years old. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He points out the obvious. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. See, again, you can see Abraham's faith. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now again, this is a shocking and a confusing story, but there are two takeaways that I want us to focus on that I think point to the significance of this passage. The first important takeaway from Abraham's story is it points to how far God is willing to go for our benefit. The story of Abraham and Isaac points to how far God is willing to go for our benefit. It starts by stating this is a test. It's only a test. Abraham was not going to die. That's made clear not only here but through the rest of Scripture. That was never the point. And God's doing something far bigger here than just testing Abraham's faith. See, as you read through the Old Testament, what you find again and again is something that God does is he uses situations and people's lives to paint a picture for something that's going to happen in the future. He foreshadows something that's ahead, something that's going to come. And so one of the things that we already know at this point in the story is that sin is very, very serious. And God takes sin very seriously. And that's why the consequence for sin is death. 
And so that means that if the consequence of sin is death, then everybody is under this sentence of death. And the only way to get out from under that is for there to be a substitute, for there to be someone who dies in our place so that we don't have to experience the consequences of rebelling against God. Abraham was fully aware of this. And so through this scene, what God is doing is he's painting a picture of how he's going to address and redeem the world. And in doing this, what Abraham does, what God does is he actually points forward and says, Jesus is going to be the one who ultimately saves you. Check out these similarities. One of them is, we already mentioned this, but Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah actually is located where Jerusalem is located. So one of the things that God is doing in telling him to travel to this place, Jerusalem is the same place where, where Christ was crucified. And many people who have studied this and scholars and historians and people that understand the layout of the land, they believe that actually the same mountain that Abraham took Isaac up on is the same location where Calvary was, where Jesus died on the cross for us. Another thing that's significant is the fact that it took Abraham three days to get there. How long was Jesus in the grave? He was in the grave for three days. So what God is doing in this test of Abraham's life is it's not just about Abraham and his faith. But he's pointing ahead, and at the same place where Christ would later be the substitute for us, he's painting this picture saying, I'm going to be the one who's going to provide. And Abraham got that. Abraham wasn't confused about that. You you can see that in what Abraham says in the passage. In verse 14, he ends it, and it says, So Abraham called that place the, the Lord will provide. He could have called that place, at this place, God tested Abraham. I mean, that makes sense. He could have called it that. He could have said, at this place, God saved Isaac. Or at this place, he could have said, God did provide. But instead, he uses a word that looks to the future, and he says, at this place, God will provide. Because Abraham got it. This, this that had just happened that him and Isaac had just looked, lived through was pointing to the fact that at some time, God the Father was going to send his son Jesus to come into the world and die to pay the consequences for all of our sin. And when that happened, there wouldn't be anybody to yell out stop for those whose hands were nailing Jesus to the cross. So this points straight to Jesus and shows how far God is willing to go for our benefit. Another important takeaway from this story is the fact that God blesses faith. Abraham knew that what God was asking him to do was to give up what he loved the most, but he also knew that what God could give him was greater than what he would ever be asked to give up. See, Isaac, again, imagine this. Isaac, Abraham's waited 25 years, and then let's just say that Isaac is 15 years old. That means 25 years of waiting and then 15 years raising Isaac, helping him to know God and to learn the ways of the Lord, and then God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I want you to give me what is most important to you. But what Abraham knew, again, is he knew that in faith, God could give him more than what he was asked to give. So this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews is really a book that's written to clarify and give commentary on many of the Old Testament passages that we read. So this is what it says, chapter 11, verse 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And this is so significant. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. He came to the conclusion, based on his experience with God, based on what he had seen God do, based on the stories he knew about the fact that God had created the world and God was good and loving, he came to the conclusion that I'm serving a God who is good and loving. And even if it means that God has to raise the dead, 
I know that God is going to be faithful to the promise. Even if I have to give up what I love the most, I know that God has something even better for me. That's what Abraham comes to the conclusion of, and it's actually something that applies to us today. The reality that God blesses faith. And while we're not going to be tested in the same way as Abraham, Scripture makes that clear. We're not going to go through the same test. We are going to reach intersections in life where the question is going to be asked, are we willing to trust God enough to give up what's most important to us, believing that he's got something better? Over and over again, the question that we're going to encounter is, do we trust God enough that even if we give up what we love the most, God has something better? And I don't know what those intersections are going to be for you and your life. I know that you're going to encounter them, and I know the question is, is there's going to be this struggle of, I, God, I love this. This means so much to me, but God's asking us to give it up because he has something even better for us. So I don't know what those intersections are going to be, but maybe it's going to be that you're asked to give up a career dream and have faith that God has something better. Or maybe it's going to be that God asks you to give up a retirement goal and have faith that he has something better. Or maybe God's going to ask you to give up a relationship and have faith that God's got something even better. Or maybe God's going to ask you to give up some free time and some hobbies and again, have faith that God has something better. See, the, the story of Abraham shows us, and in Abraham's example, we see that God is good and loving, and what God has planned for us and what God has in store for us is far greater than what we could ever have for ourselves. And that means that even if we reach a point in life where God says, I want you to give up what you love the most, the question that we have to ask ourselves, okay, this God that I claim to serve, I claim to believe that he can give me something better than what I love. But do I trust him enough to actually act on that? Am I going to exhibit the faith where even if God says, give up what you love the most, I'm going to trust him that if I do that, God has something even better in store for me. That's what we see in the example of Abraham. If you'll join me, we'll wrap up our service in prayer. Father God, I... I thank you that in revealing your word to us, you, you did it in a way that we can understand, in a way that makes sense to us, in a way that not only we can go back and research, but a way that we can, we can see through your interaction with others how you may interact with and how you may lead us. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are good and loving, and so I ask you that we would trust that. I pray that your example that you paint and then in a few thousand years from Abraham's example you actually lived out 2,000 years ago from us that you did pay the ultimate price for us and you for our benefit went to the greatest length so that we could be redeemed from our sin and we could enter back into a right relationship with you father I pray that because of what you've done and because of what you've said that we would put our faith in you just like Abraham did and that means that even if we reach those intersections where you ask us to give up something in order to follow you, God, I pray that our trust would be that you have something even better than we would ever be asked to give up. Father, I pray that that's what the result of this would be. In Jesus' name, amen.